This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 420,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel at any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitempodcast, no dashes, no spaces, to claim your offer. For this episode, I'm going to recommend Recursion by Blake Crouch. What starts out as a detective story leads to an investigation of a mysterious condition where people are haunted by memories of things that never happened. And from there on, the book expands into a story of memory, regret, atonement, time travel, and various global apocalypses. It's science fiction that's simultaneously both hugely expansive and deeply personal. And while it does dip here and there into some well-worn tropes, it's still very much a page-turner. To check it out, go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitempodcast. No dashes, no spaces. One more time, that's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitempodcast. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 3, Not-So-Plain English, Educating English Language Learners. Do you speak another language besides your native language? If so, you're a part of the 60-75% to of the world's population that does so, although only about 40% are truly bilingual. In the United States, only about 20% of the populace speaks more than one language. So depending on who you are listening to this podcast right now, you may or may not have ever had the experience of trying to learn something new via a lesson taught in a language that's not the one you most naturally use and understand. I can speak to this challenge from personal experience. I'm a native English speaker, and at the risk of sounding immodest, I consider myself fairly sharp-minded and well-educated. I earned a PhD, for pity's sake, and they don't just give those out, not even in educational studies. But when I took a university course one summer in Bogota, Colombia, that was taught in Spanish, I suddenly felt, well, pretty stupid. I had plenty of thoughts I wanted to express, yet it was like trying to filter a rainstorm through an eyedropper. There were plenty of things I heard spoken that I would have had interesting reactions to, except by the time I fully processed what had been said, the conversation had moved on to another topic. As for the readings, well, the concepts would have made sense to me had I understood the nuances of the language in which they were written. The native speakers in class could easily run circles around me, and anyone watching me would not suspect that I had much to offer intellectually. And all of this was in a situation where I was technically fluent in Spanish. I also speak and understand Japanese much less well than Spanish, and when I try and engage in complex academic subjects in Japanese, I fall down the ladder from slow and dim to certifiably mentally impaired. Sure, I can carry on casual conversation well enough, and no one will ever mistake me for a native speaker, but I can get by so long as things stay simple. But there is simply no way I can carry on or even understand a conversation in Japanese about politics, economics, global warming, or even my own subject area of expertise, educational theory and practice. I'm not going to get into the reads of the Saffir-Whorf hypothesis or debate Chomsky versus Skinner, but the very short distillation of where that discussion would take us is this. It's very hard to disentangle the process of thought from the process of language. Or rather, thought is often constructed within the context of a particular language. Language isn't just the filter for our thinking, it in many ways forms the basis of it. The act of learning new information, 
especially learning at high and complex levels of analysis or evaluation, is challenging enough for any of us. But when you add the complexity of trying to do so through a new or unfamiliar language, well, let's just say it's much more than a matter of putting in the effort or the hours. Furthermore, teaching someone something, helping them learn in a language that's not their most familiar one, is no simple matter. Yet an increasing number of American teachers every day are charged with doing just that, ensuring the learning of English language learners, that they meet all the same knowledge and competency standards as everyone else. And in three states in particular, California, Arizona, and my own Massachusetts, the tools which we have had available to do so were for a long time forcibly limited by law. And those laws were informed more by politics than by any sort of linguistic or educational understandings. But let's back up and set the stage for all that. About one out of every 10 public school students in the U.S. right now is what we would call an English language learner, or an ELL. An English language learner is a student who experiences challenges in communicating fluently or learning effectively in English. They often come from non-English speaking homes and backgrounds, and they typically require specialized or modified instruction both in English language and in the learning of any kind of academic content beyond that. Contrary to public rhetoric about immigration, documented or otherwise, most ELLs were in fact born in the United States and are U.S. citizens. While the vast majority of ELLs speak Spanish, there are lots of other languages out there too. Cantonese, Mandarin, Arabic, Vietnamese, and more. Screening methods that schools use for identifying ELLs differ widely from state to state, ranging from mere take-home surveys to intensive interviews and supervised test-taking. California has the most ELLs in the nation. Actually, they have about a third of all ELLs in the United States, and Texas makes up another 20%. But English language learners populate the schools in every state, and in nearly every state their population is growing. As a general rule of thumb, the average classroom in the U.S., if there was such a thing, would have one in every ten of its students as an ELL. That's pretty much the case in Massachusetts, where I taught for 20 years. An average of about 8-10% to of public school students are ELLs. But as with most anything in education, location counts for a lot. ELLs tend to be concentrated in certain areas. In Boston, for example, about 30% of students are ELLs. Taken as a whole, ELLs struggle at American public schools. Only 63% of ELLs graduate from high school. That's compared with the overall national rate of 82%. In some states, the difference is particularly dramatic. For example, in New York, the overall high school population graduates at a rate of about 78%, but for ELLs, it's 37%. Nationwide, only 2% of ELLs are enrolled in gifted programs, compared with about 7% of non-ELL students. Remember, since the passage of 2001's No Child Left Behind Act, the burden of students learning sufficient material and skills to pass graduation tests lies 100% to the shoulders of schools and teachers. So what methods do we use to help ELLs learn? The method that used to predominate in American public schools was what we call bilingual education. Although it could take different forms, the general idea behind bilingual ed is that such a program uses the student's native language as a tool of instruction while they also begin learning English. The program is meant to help the student for about two to four years until it's determined that they can successfully handle academic work entirely in English. Until then, they learn chemistry or history or anything else in their native language as a scaffold to make sure they're still acquiring that content as they're acquiring competency in English. There's a fair amount of research to support bilingual ed. Concepts and skills that students learn in one language are found to be transferable to another. There's evidence that strong primary language development helps students learn English too. 
and that students are ill-prepared to tackle many school-related tasks because they require a fairly sophisticated grasp of English. We're learning more and more that students who are highly proficient in two or more languages appear to have certain academic advantages over monolingual students. And of course, there's also evidence that supporting primary language promotes self-esteem. It's hard to feel good about yourself if you have no idea what's going on in your class. Of course, all of these benefits of bilingual education only apply when it's being done right. Unfortunately, in practice, many school districts often struggle to find qualified teachers in a given language, and students come out too often lacking a firm grounding in either English or their other academic subjects. Prior to No Child Left Behind, the educational approach for far too many ELL students across America was essentially the equivalent of putting them in the corner and leaving them to their own devices. In just too many cases, schools didn't have the personnel or the know-how to effectively implement bilingual education the way it was supposed to run. Some opponents of bilingual education, however, staked their hopes and their political capital on a method that became known as English immersion. Basically, the idea of throwing a student into an English-only classroom in a sink-or-swim style. The thinking went that if that student didn't have the crutch of their native language to lean on, they would learn English faster and thus be able to access all of their academic work more quickly. 30 years of research in second language acquisition did not support and, in fact, counterindicated the success of that method. But in the throes of sweeping education reform in the early 2000s, when all sorts of traditional school structures were up for revision, research was not always the sole motivator behind some changes so much as politics. The early 2000s was also a time when anti-immigrant sentiment among the American right was beginning to surge, and one particular businessman turned politician seized on that surge and changed the way millions of ELLs were taught for the next decade. That man was Ron Unz. Unz was born in California to an immigrant family, and by all accounts had a very difficult early life. Born out of wedlock, raised in a single-parent household, and dependent on government welfare aid growing up, Unz was determined to change his station in life. Excelling in school, he went on to win a prestigious Westinghouse scholarship in high school, and eventually went on to attend Harvard University, where he earned a BA in science, physics, and ancient history. Unz began a career working in the banking industry, writing software for mortgage securities, and later founded a company called Wall Street Analytics in Palo Alto, California. Unz turned to politics in the early 1990s, where he made an unsuccessful bid for the Republican nomination for governor of California in 1994, losing out to former Terminator actor Arnold Schwarzenegger, unwilling to accept hasta la vista, baby, as the final word in his political career. Unz found success in anti-immigration movements and particularly in advocating for English-only instruction in California schools, promoting ballot proposition number 227, which became known as the Unz Initiative, to ban instruction in California public schools in any language other than English, including bilingual education. Unz quickly garnered over half a million signatures on his petition and invested a large part of his own fortune in the drive to get the resulting ballot measure passed. In his rhetoric, ELL students, particularly Spanish-speaking immigrants, were, quote, sitting back and being a burden on those who are already here, unquote. Some supporters of this measure, including some in California's Mexican-American communities, considered what they saw to be an increased push for ELL children to learn English as beneficial to their future success in college and the job world. Opponents attacked the proposition as jingoistic and even racist, which in the case of Unz himself might not have been too far off. By the late 20-teens, Unz had made a name for himself in alt-right anti-Semitic circles, including, among other things, defending the fraudulent protocols of the elders of Zion, denying the Holocaust, and accusing the Israeli Secret Service of masterminding the Kennedy assassination. 
The fact that Unz himself is Jewish makes this all a little strange, but that doesn't seem to have stopped alt-right readers from frequenting his still self-published periodical, The Unz Review. Anyway, Unz's success was that back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, he touched a chord in voters well outside the alt-right and into the mainstream. Proposition number 227 wound up passing by a wide margin, 61% to 39%. Emboldened, Unz's supporters went on to propose a similar ballot question in 2002 in Massachusetts, which also went on to win by a wide margin. The phrasing was simple and appealed to common-sense thinking among voters. The text of ballot question number two was simply that, quote, all public school children must be taught English by being taught all subjects in English and being placed in English language classrooms, unquote. The state of Arizona went on to pass similar laws. As a result of these ballot initiatives, bilingual education classes were all but eliminated, except in circumstances where a critical mass of ELLs speaking a particular language were present, and whose parents agreed to, quote, waive their right to an English language only education, unquote. Bilingual education was replaced by one of two things, either structured immersion programs, basically just putting ELL students into English language classrooms, sink or swim, with no English as a second language support or instruction, or more commonly, what was called sheltered English immersion, or SEI. SEI also forced English language learners to take all their classes in English, but in SEI, all ELL students below a certain level of English competency, regardless of their native language, were also placed together in supplementary classes where they were explicitly instructed in learning English. SEI was seen as a temporary support with the goal of students exiting within one or two years. Because of the legal conceptualization of English language-only instruction as a student's right, the law gave parents the ability to actually sue teachers who used a student's native language to support their instruction, although I couldn't find any cases where this actually happened. Still, the idea of communicating with ELL students, at least for instructional purposes, in their native language was most definitely a no-no. School was to be all English, all the time. At this point, it's important to mention that English is not the official language of the United States. Unlike many other nations, the United States does not actually have any federally mandated official language, and never has. The Constitution makes no mention of an official language, by design, since at the time of its drafting, thousands of newly minted Americans were speaking German, Dutch, or French as their native language. And that's not even counting all of the African and Native American languages that were spoken in the colonies. Today, somewhere around 350 major languages are spoken in our country. This is not to say that there have not been efforts to make English the U.S.'s official language, either through constitutional amendments or other federal-level laws. There have been dozens and dozens of attempts over the last two centuries, but none of them have succeeded. That said, 31 states have made English their official language, but when it comes to actually enforcing those laws in any meaningful way, especially in the context of instruction in public schools, states always come up against two barriers, one legal and one linguistic. First, the linguistic barrier, and that is that there's simply no official definition of what constitutes English. Just like how Darwin's finches separated over different islands over time, evolve different traits and characteristics. So too do speakers of any given language evolve new dialects and versions based on location, age, class, race, time period, you name it. While some countries like France or China have an official government agency that establishes what the so-called standard form of their language is, the USA has no such thing, and neither, despite some attempts, does the UK. So when a Bostonian says, get some water out of the friggin' bubbler, and Bob Marley says, no woman, no cry. And Eliza Doolittle says, hey there, governor. And Dr. Dre says, no diggity. And Scarlett O'Hara says, y'all come back now, you hear? 
they are all of them speaking English. There are 24 major dialects of English in the United States alone, and hundreds of sub-dialects and sub-sub-dialects and so forth, which you know if you've ever spoken with anyone in your life outside of your own immediate community. Schools or newspapers might talk about something called Standard English and tie it to MLA or APA or Chicago rules, but there is no official adjudicating body, not even at the state level, that says, aha, these are the rules for official English. To a linguist, the only standard for whether or not you're speaking a language correctly is if another speaker of that same language can understand you. America ain't got no official language, in other words, is perfectly valid English linguistically because you understand exactly what I'm saying, as opposed to if I said, lurp, gleep, glop, bloop, unless of course you're from Mars, I don't want to assume. As famous Yiddish linguist Max Weinreich once said, a language is just a dialect with an army and a navy. Actually, he said it in Yiddish, a spracht is a dialect mit an army and flot. Put in simpler terms, it means if the South had won the American Civil War, then teachers throughout the country would be circling you all on papers with a red pen and writing y'all as a correction. So the linguistic barrier to requiring instruction in English in a nutshell, who's English? Then there are the legal barriers. Part of the reason those state laws are nearly impossible to enforce is because there's about a century worth of federal level laws and US Supreme Court cases that protect the rights of minorities, including linguistic minorities, or so it's been interpreted. Among these, the Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Bilingual Education Act, the 1974 Equal Educational Opportunities Act, and cases like Myers versus Nebraska, which overturned the right of states to impose criminal penalties on any public or private educators who taught in languages other than English, or Diana versus the Board of Education in 1970, which said that schools could not place ELL children in special education classes solely based on their performance on tests in English, or Lau versus Nichols in 1974, which said that students' right to an education could not be denied them simply because they didn't understand the language of instruction. Particularly relevant for the post-UNS era was Castaneda v. Picard, 1981, which said that to comply with the Equal Educational Opportunities Act, schools had to show that their educational practices were based on sound educational theory, were being properly implemented, and were producing results. So what sort of results did English-only education in the early 2000s produce? As it turns out, pretty poor ones. Let's look to Massachusetts in particular. A 2009 study from the Massachusetts Board of Elementary and Secondary Education revealed that English immersion strategies led to proficiency for just about 20% of ELL students, and those were the ones who began with the highest level of English proficiency. Even for them, it might have taken five years or more to achieve English proficiency, and in the meantime, dropout rates for ELLs were three times higher than those for non-ELL students. Between 2009 and 2013, the state test, the MCAS, showed persistent achievement gaps between ELL and non-ELL students, and as with the bilingual education programs that preceded it, districts struggled to find properly trained teachers who could do sheltered English immersion. California and Arizona's results were similarly dismal. But I'm staying with Massachusetts for a moment, not just because it's my home state, but because in July of 2011, the U.S. Department of Justice cited Massachusetts for violating the civil rights of ELLs by not requiring adequate mandatory training for content teachers who provided SEI instruction. Massachusetts, said the DOJ, was out of compliance with the Federal Equal Educational Opportunities Act. And the remedy? Well, one among many, state ordered in 2012, was that all core academic teachers who are responsible for ELLs, which was pretty much everyone, and the administrators and supervisors of such teachers, which was pretty much everyone else, had to have an SEI endorsement added to their license, effective as of 2016. The endorsement could only be earned 
by enrolling in specialized courses that provided training in basic linguistics and language acquisition. In other words, responsibility for educating ELL students was no longer considered solely the purview of ESL or English teachers. It was now the responsibility of everyone, math teachers, science teachers. They all had to become proficient in teaching students to acquire a new language, English. In many cases, districts were unable to provide financial assistance for teachers to take these courses in sheltered English immersion, leaving teachers, not for the first time, to pay for required certifications out of their own pocketbook. This led to a demand for low-cost, often state-subsidized courses, which, let's say, varied widely in quality, and were too often taught by instructors who didn't understand the linguistic concepts underpinning the classes themselves. By 2016, California had pretty much gutted its English-language-only instruction laws, and Massachusetts followed the next year. Arizona is still in process. But that doesn't mean that bilingual education has come back to these states with a vengeance, or that even where it does exist, that it's suddenly being done well now. In practice, a lot of schools are still proceeding with the sheltered English immersion model because that's what they've trained their teachers in for the last decade. So what can teachers do if they have ELL students in their class and SEI is the only tool they've got? Well, a decade worth of English only for many schools did force teachers to develop as best a set of methods as they could, and there are research-based best practices within the SEI umbrella. They generally involve a recognition that second language is acquired through use in multiple contexts as opposed to learned through a process of memorization and repetition. That's why so many native English speakers forget what they learned in their foreign language courses in high school, unless or until they actually spend a decent amount of time in a foreign country where that language is spoken. Effective SEI teachers make language available and comprehensible for a variety of purposes using multiple techniques and get their students into communicative situations as quickly as functionally and as authentically as possible. They don't make a big deal out of linguistic errors and encourage students to proceed hoping they'll correct themselves with practice and confidence, which they often will. Teachers can encourage rephrasing and circumlocution to say the same thing even if the student doesn't yet know the word or construction she wants to use. The use of visuals is a vital tool. Complementing any collection of text with carefully chosen images that match, enhance, and communicate the fundamental meanings behind those words. If you want everyone to take out their pencil and paper, why not show a picture of someone doing that as you say it? Another effective practice under the SEI umbrella is Cognitive Academic Language Learning Approaches, or CALA. It's a way of modeling academic discourse and the special language we use for thinking by making that language the explicit subject for instruction. In other words, what are the words that are doing school words that a student is likely to come across that are not necessarily subject area specific, but specific to learning and doing school-related things. Think about words like assignment, deadline, outline, draft, drill, analyze, hypothesize, conclude. Effective SEI instructors maximize the use of realia, props, role-playing, dialogue journals for back-and-forth language practice with the teacher, plus all the other good stuff that progressive education has been talking about for years. Accessing prior knowledge, engaging in cooperative learning for support by peers, reciprocal teaching, encouraging and rewarding revision, these are practices that aid any student's learning and are particularly vital for helping ELL students. Teachers of English language learners do have resources they can draw upon, such as those from the World Class Instructional Design and Assessment Consortium, or WIDA. It's a consortium of states, and Massachusetts is one of them, dedicated to the design and implementation of high standards and equitable educational opportunities for English language learners. At least, that's the motto on their website. WIDA provides highly detailed, some might say exhaustive, descriptions of capabilities and goals for students at a wide variety of levels of English language acquisition in listening, speaking, 
and writing. Rita has also helped many teachers develop an understanding that there's a difference between what we call in linguistics BICS, basic interpersonal communication skills, and CALP, cognitive academic language proficiency. In other words, just because a student can communicate socially with her friends or even with a teacher doesn't necessarily mean she has command of the kind of academic language that will help her be successful in school. Most people can develop BICS in a second language within about one to two years, but CALP? Well, that can take as many as five or even ten years. Remember my experience in that class in Columbia. As with so many things in public education, different schools find different solutions based upon resources, ideology, personnel, and the characteristics of the populations they serve. Population trends across the country speak to America becoming increasingly diverse, and that includes linguistic diversity. ELLs will represent a greater and greater portion of the school children population, at least for the near-term future. Now that schools are once again free to develop a variety of means of serving these students effectively, it remains to be seen how schools, which are, in the final analysis, public institutions and thus subject to public opinion, whether or not it's informed by educational research, will choose to base their approach on research, politics, or something else entirely, and whether and to what degree they'll fund it. What this all comes back to is that public schools have a mission to ensure that all students learn, including those students who don't speak the primary language of instruction. I'm personally fascinated by what are called dual language immersion programs, where students who are ELL and non-ELL are placed in more or less equal numbers in the same classes, and then instruction takes place in both languages, not just in language acquisition, but in all subject content areas as well. That way, the reasoning goes, everyone increases their mastery of a second language, and everyone has the experience both of learning academic content in the comfort of their native language, and of stretching themselves to meet the challenge of learning that content through the filter of a new language. This, of course, assumes that most or all of the ELLs at the school speak the same language, and that you have a teaching staff and administration with the necessary language skills to pull all this off. For these and other reasons, dual language immersion isn't done often, but I've seen some schools that do it. It's ambitious as all heck, but it also provides us with one more vision of what a more robust and perhaps more just and equitable approach to learning could look like. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you get a treat. Today's education fun fact. According to a 2015 issue of Education Week, a higher proportion of the millennial generation in the United States earned a college degree than their counterparts in other countries. However, millennials with a four-year degree in the United States still had lower math skills than any other country except Poland and Spain. You are welcome, of course, to receive the aforementioned fact with the response, Okay, Boomer. Although, to be accurate, I'm really more a part of Generation X. Bye now.